And good morning, everybody. Welcome to Twin Cities Church. If you're visiting with us and online, we're really sorry about the technical snafu. Everybody here doesn't know all the problems that exist online. Something with YouTube resetting the... T- anyway, you keep texting if there's problems. <laughs> Text George, not me. Well, we're in the midst here of this series on the mission of the church out of Luke and Acts. And we've really been discussing and talking about... Well, stories, and stories are really, really important to our lives. And I think we all recognize that to some extent, but maybe not fully recognize how significant and important a story is. And when you just think about our lives and just the consumption of stories, we just think of how many stories we take in. We are voracious with stories. If it's TV shows, movies, books, We are constantly looking for a story, enjoying stories, wanting better stories, repeating stories. Like, it's just, we live for stories, right? It's as if we were created, right, to need a story, to run off of those types of stories. So on a broad level, we want and we consume and we need stories. But even just on a practical daily level, we need stories as well. Uh, Alistair McIntyre, he's this philosopher in his book, After Virtue. He gives an example of stories of just if you are at a bus stop, if you imagine yourself, and who's at a bus stop anymore, but if you are at a bus stop and someone comes up to you and just says, the name of the common duck is Histrionicus, 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 and then walks away. What do you do? Right, and all of us instantly create a story to make sense of what decision we're going to do next. Right, either we say, well, that was some crazy man, and you ignore it. But you made a story about him. You decided that this was just a prank, or this is just someone, or maybe, again, you make another story and you say, this was mistaken identity. You know, maybe he, someone who looked just like me had asked him what that name was of the common duck, and now he's mistaken me for him, and he's just showing up and giving me that name, in which, okay, I will just, I think you have the wrong person, you know, my name's Lawrence. What's, and were you, were you, did you mean to tell me the name of a, the common duck? Right? That'll be what I'll do next if I think it's mistaken identity. Or he gives the other one of like, or perhaps it's a spy. And that was the code name or the kind of word given for the other spy. And, and if I confront him, I might end up getting assassinated or killed. You know, the, and the point being, right, like we use narratives every moment to make sense of the decisions that we do. It drives us. When, I mean, the reason you came to church this morning, how we're going to interact with one another, why we would say hi to someone and not to somebody else, why I would give money to the homeless person at the corner, why I would not, why I will go to work on Monday, why I would not go to work on Monday, why I would work hard, because I have a story. I make up a story about that person that I'm interacting with, about myself and why I'm working and what I'm doing We are driven by stories. Alistair McIntyre describes then life, all of life, he argues, right, is just enacted narratives. Like we have a story, and then I live out my story, or the story 
that I'm hearing or believing. And every good story or all of these stories that we act out are the ones we gravitate to the most. They have to be fairly compelling stories for us to do something, or at least the story or the option of a story that we think is the most compelling, because every story has to provide us answers. It has to give some answers to things, just like the man at the bus stop. Whoa, what's his deal? So I'm going to make a story to give me an answer to my questions. And most you know, literary scholars and stuff would agree that most stories all kind of contain three big questions or three big aspects to a story, right? That a good story or a compelling story has to give us some sort of picture of what life should be or what life could be or what we all want. Right? There has to be something good that the protagonists in the story are always striving for, if it's love or acceptance, if it's to defeat evil. Right? But there's got to be something good that we're all working towards and I want. But then it's not a story unless there's obstacles to that. Hope. There's got to be some sort of villain in every good story, some sort of thing or person or group that stands between us and the thing that we want. And then there has to be some sort of way in which we can overcome those things, some sort of hope or way in which we could arrive at that hope, overcome those obstacles, get around, and finally deliver. And so we look for those types of stories, and we make up those types of stories. And all of us have these very compelling narratives of our lives, where we say, I, am, I know what the life I want, I know the life that I need, I want if it's to overcome sin, if it's I want to live a life that is pleasing to God, I want to live a life that is peaceful, I'm going to live a life of justice, I'm going to live a life of beauty, I'm going to live a life of Right, whatever it is, comfort and success. Like we all have these things that we say, this is what I need. This is what I was made for. I'm going to do it. I, my story is a story of overcoming obstacles, overcoming addiction, overcoming my moral failings, overcoming, right? I'm gonna, I, what do I need to overcome? I'm going to overcome that and then hopefully get to that goal or that hope. We always are consuming and looking for these types of stories to make sense of our life and to drive us and to give us motivation for the things that we do. And we have no shortage of competing stories of what it is I should be pursuing with my life, no shortage of obstacles and enemies that get presented to me as this is what's preventing me from having that marriage I've always wanted or preventing me from having that job I've always wanted or preventing me from having the life I've always wanted. You know, there's always a different list of villains and obstacles that stand in front of me. And then our, our lives and our culture are just full of potential saviors that get presented to. If you do this, if I do this, if I can just get this under control, if I can do this, then I'll be delivered, we'll finally arrive at that glorious ending that I'm looking for. And so it's in that kind of just constant inundation, or as John says this morning about marinating in things, just these stories, it's just, it's constant. We're hearing the stories, we believe different stories, and we enact all of these stories. 
And as a church, as Christians, we've been placed within the biggest and most powerful story that there ever was. And it's helpful for us to be reminded of that story. And we've gone through these story, the story of Scripture over and over. But the passages this morning we really wanted to emphasize because they give the power and motivation, the hope that comes out of this gospel story. And if you look at these narratives, right, they're pretty powerful and compelling. Because the gospel story, the story of the Bible, does answer the questions that we've been looking for. It gives compelling answers to life's questions. And I would argue the most compelling answers to life's questions. That what is the hope or what were things meant for? What was this life meant for? Well, we read it in Colossians and Ephesians. We read it through all Scripture. For Christians, we believe, and Scripture confirms, that all things were made good. All things. Everything in this world was created by Christ. Everything. There's not one part of this world that wasn't made by Christ. Everything was made by him. Everything was made for him. Everything is held together through him. Christians believe everything in the world is good. Fundamentally, foundationally good. There are no garbage people in the world. There are no garbage things in the world. God only makes good things. God only makes beautiful things because God is good and God is beautiful. Everything in its created state, in its original, is good, was good, is good. This goodness, and this is very unique in terms of world religions and philosophies. And it kind of becomes white noise to Christians, like, yeah, everything's good. Yep, God made everything good. But in most, there has to be a dichotomy, like good and bad. Good. This is the bad stuff. This is the good stuff. These are the good people to be with. These are the bad people. Right? This is our culture. Our world operates around this. You create groups of people that are bad. You create groups of people that are good. Certain things that are bad, certain things that are good. Never do that. Always do this. Never be with this person. Always be with this person. Never be like that. Always be like this. We'd like, right, it's, we'd like to have really clear-cut, black and white, that's bad, that's good. But if Christ created everything, we don't say that Christ created bad things. Everything was created good. Everything and everyone has that creational goodness in it which rings true right, to our experiences. How else do we explain right, the bubbling up of beauty everywhere? Creational goodness and love in things that shouldn't. But we're struck by it. It's impossible to live our lives without being blown away by beauty, by goodness, by something just so good. And especially when it comes from surprising places or sources. You're like, no, that person was supposed to be bad. Why are they producing something good or beautiful? How did that artist make a beautiful work of art if they're supposed to be so corrupt and bad and against Christianity or against God? How did that 
are, wait, what, why is that good? It should be bad. It's as if, right, a good and beautiful God created this world good and beautiful. And that goodness and that beauty still exists in it. And it comes up to the surface constantly. We can see goodness everywhere. All things were created good. But then you have the second part to the narrative, too, or to the story, clearly communicated as well in these passages. But something broke down. There was a corrupting, a corrupting of all of that goodness. As Christians, we believe that all things have been infected and corrupted by sin. That there has been a loss of peace in this world. But there was a breakdown, a fundamental breakdown. This intrusion and outside force came into this world, which is sin, and has ruined everything. And there is nothing untouched by sin. Everything. There's one French philosopher, Luke Ferry, I was reading earlier too, who, who talks about how Christianity is the most pessimistic worldview in the world. Because we look at everything and say, everything's corrupt. Everyone is capable of incredible evil. Everything is broken. That's what the Bible describes. That's the situation that Jesus reconciles. There is the fundamental loss of that goodness, that harmony, that peace that God created this world to have because of the intrusion of sin. Again, very unique Christianity in terms of that worldview because while worldviews like to have good and bad or different, you know, the, the right and the wrong, the heroes and the villains, Christianity then looks at the world and says, well, this gets a little tricky, who's the hero and who's the villain? If I've got to break up the world into heroes and the villains, I'm probably one of the villains more than I'm one of the heroes. If everything has been corrupted by sin, I can't trust anything. I can't trust myself. I can't trust my thinking Right, but we like to do that. We like to say reason is better and more trustworthy than our feelings or our emotions, as if reason, like emotions are more sinful and reason is more pure and can never be corrupted. You know, everything has been corrupted. No, no, you know, you know sex outside of marriage is, is corrupt. Sex inside of marriage is good, always good. Whoa. No, our sexual expressions are corrupt, have been corrupted. They can be good and bad in any... I mean, this, the, the context, we can't just assume, right? The world likes to assume or make like this. It's always right. It's always good. This group is always right. Christians are always good. The church is always a good place. It's never corrupt, never sinful. But if we really believe in sin, we can't trust anything. Everything has been corrupted. Because Christianity is unique again in that we don't look at anything in the world as the villain, or the enemy that has to be overcome. It's not behavior, it's not politics or political view, it's not a person or a type of person that's the enemy to us, but rather it's sin is our problem. The lack of a relationship with God, that loss of peace, that's our problem. That loss of intimacy with the Lord, which has, lost, which has led to that relational breakdown with God, which leads to the relational breakdown with one another. As Christians, when we look at the world, and this is what's described, right, in this Colossians and Ephesians passage, 
The fundamental problem is a relational problem. What needs to be fixed is a relational thing. I have a broken relationship with God. I have a broken relationship with people. Why is there such conflict? Why is there such war? Why is there such hurt? It's as if, right? It's as if there's some sort of infection that has ruined or broken human relationships. Which again, actually makes sense and fits our experiences. Just like we're surprised by the bubbling up of goodness and beauty in the world, this also makes sense why we shouldn't be surprised at the bubbling up of evil and hurts and pains in this world. By the people we love the most, by the people we're the closest to let us down, that it's hard to maintain relationships. That it's hard and there's always this friction and fighting and conflict. Why? Why is it? It's almost as if, right, there was this intrusion of sin into the world and it's ruined everything. And it's been breaking down our relationships with one another. Christianity as a worldview really grounds Christians away from this overly utopian hope. Everybody's great. Everything's great. This is the best. To that cynical disillusionment of everything's the worst. It holds both equally. God made everything good, but everything has been corrupted. But then it offers that third act of the narrative of the story, and that's and it's clearly communicated, Paul does so beautifully here in both of these letters. All things, everything is being redeemed, has been redeemed, and is going to be restored. Jesus' death purchased peace. Jesus created all things. All things were made for him, by him, through him. Sin, us, have ruined everything. And this lack of relationship has caused conflict and warring. Jesus purchased our peace. He put things back right. We can be in relationship with God again. And all things will be redeemed. He's guaranteed a good future for us through his resurrection. He conquered sin and death and he rose from the grave to prove to us where we're all going. One day, everything will be resurrected and will be beautiful again in its fullness. It won't just be that bubbling up of beauty every time or every once in a while. It'll be always beautiful, restored, glorious, communion with God again, intimacy with him, and all things back to their restored goodness. That's the ending of the story of Scripture, right, with Revelation. This beautiful remaking of the heavens and the earth with Christ here with us. That's the end of the story. We have been purchased by him, brought into his family, given a secure hope and a future in that coming kingdom. It's a story that Luke Ferry, again, said it's a story. I think George mentioned this quote before, too. It seems too good to be true. (laughs) And it's a story that actually we don't really like to live out. It's a story we like to believe. Don't get me wrong, as Christians. Right, we've heard that story. Most of you, most of us have heard the story of the gospel, and we like to believe it's true. 
but it's not a story that really gets a lot of traction in our lives. Because if we're honest with the story, we're, we don't get to be the heroes in the narrative at all. If I have to put myself in the story, I, I'm not really the, I'm not the villain. No person's the villain. And nor am I the hero. It's like, well, who am I in this story? Because we like stories, especially stories that we can live. We like stories where we get to do stuff. We are the ones who are overcoming things. We are the ones who are fighting for things. We are the ones who are in control of things. We are the ones who have things. And in this story, we're given two options. Either the story of the Bible is true, and if it is, then Jesus is holding everything together. Jesus is working everything according to his plan. Jesus redeems and restores and saves. We are given a name by him. He cared for us. He brings us into his family. Or I'm trying to hold everything together. I'm trying to work everything according to my plan. I'm trying to redeem and save and work things. I have to make a name for myself or restore my good name because I've tarnished it. Those are the two options. And it's the two options that play out through Scripture from the very beginning all the way through. Right? The Tower of Babel is a fascinating little story too, right? But where you have them all coming together in one place, this is soon after creation, right? This is chapter 11 of Genesis, where humanity comes together into one place and tries to build a tower to make a name for themselves. Either we will let God name us, give us our name, let us be, he has made us his people. Will we let ourselves be named by God, rest in him and what he calls us, or will we make a name for ourselves? That's life, is this recognition that either we will rest in the truth of the story, that God is the hero and we are not, He's the one who provides. He's the one who holds it together. He's the one who's redeeming. He's the one who has redeemed me, or I will fight to do it myself. Paul David Tripp, I'm not sure if his book or if it was a talk, so that's always a good sign for giving a source. I just remember it's Paul David Tripp. <laughs> but he was a teacher uh, before he was a counselor. I think it was for first graders. And he gives a picture of being at a first grade birthday party. I don't know if some of you have heard the same thing. But he's at a first grade birthday party, right? And all of us have been at first grade birthday parties or young kids' birthday parties. And there's a kid there crying in the room, right? And Paul goes up to him asking, you know, why are you crying? And Shaw says, it's not my birthday. And I wish it was. <laughs> and Paul used that point of like, that's all of our lives, every day of our life, is coming to the realization that it's not my birthday, and it's never going to be my birthday. 
this world isn't mine. That's what Colossians tells us. All of this is Jesus's, including me. It's never going to be my birthday. I don't get the presents. And I can either enjoy the party and be there, or I cannot and try to have my own counterfeit little birthday party on the side and act like it's my birthday. And that's life. We can live these narratives and these stories where we try to take control, we try to earn, we try to hold on to, we try to make a name for ourselves or clear our name or do all of the work, or we rest in God's provision for us, that he has made a name for us. Because he's so good and so generous Right? And that's where he is so unlike. Right? And that's why scripture continually says, like, who is like our God? Because yes, it's his birthday, but he freely gives his gifts to us. <laughs> he brings us to the table. He shares with us who don't deserve any of it. Right? Who have been outside complaining and crying that it's not my birthday. <laughs> Instead of throwing us out, he brings us in. Who does this? What kind of God does this, cares for us in this way? Because the story we live determines our motivations and the hopes and the reasons why we do the things that we do. Because there's a difference. Outwardly, there may not look like a difference for Christians. We've been describing a lot of the things that Christians are supposed to do, how Christians are supposed to live, submit to authorities. Okay, great. I can submit to authorities but be living out two different narratives. I can look Christian, but not be following the story of the Bible. (laughs) I can believe in salvation, right? And we use the gospel as the means of our salvation, not as the story for our lives. The gospel story is just my guarantee of why I'm going to heaven. My day-to-day life, well, I mean, I got to make my own story to make sense of that. But there is a difference And the difference scripturally, right, and that's why Paul always talks about this, the New Testament, they always are talking about this fruit, not to judge by actions, but to look at the fruit. Look at the fruit of our lives. Look at the fruit of your life. If we abide in Christ, which is resting in his story, right, if I abide in him, as I abide in Christ, as I live the gospel story, as I recognize every day that it is not my birthday, and that someone else is saving the world, someone else is saving me, someone has saved me, given me a name, there is peace that comes from that. There is joy. There is love. There is worship. There is giving myself freely to community. Steadfastness. I'm not shifting back and forth because I know What's going on? I don't feel tossed by the political winds of the world or by anything because I know the ending of my story. I know the ending of all of our stories. I don't lose hope. I freely submit myself to authorities, whatever that authority is, because I know who really is in control. Versus, again, that other option, if I'm abiding in myself, or living in a various cultural narrative 
that I've been given, a story by someone else, right? I am reactive, right? <laughs> I am flying off the handle at times. I am bothered and upset. I get overly religious, right? I will go through fits, bouts of like religiousness. I will do really, really well for a while, and then I'm going to do really bad for a while. And then I'm going to come back to Jesus, and I'm going to do really well again. I'm going to go up and down. I'm going to isolate myself. I'm going to flee from community because it's too hard, right? Because I'm not strong. I like to be alone because there I have control. And I'm going to be rebellious because right? I'm the king of my own life. I'm in charge of my story. Of course, I'm always going to have a rebellious streak in me that will never truly submit to authorities. Why would I? I'm in control of this. I have these things. My life, I've worked hard for my life. I've worked hard for my things. I can enjoy them and control them and use them. Nobody can tell me what to do with the things that are mine. These are mine. Oof. Again, if I say nothing is mine, my life is not mine, everything is Jesus Christ, and he is good, and he has created it good, and he is working for, this, for his kingdom, I freely give, I freely, I lightly hold all the things that he's given me. Outwardly looking very similar, but the, not the same spirit, not the same fruit, not the same consistency in life, right? A few weeks back, George referenced that book, Unchristian, by David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, which is from like 2007, 2008, on like what people think about Christians, right? Non-Christians think about Christians. It was 13 years ago, right? And, you know, 91% of non-Christians in this age group think that, you know, Christians all hate gay people, and 81% think Christians are judgmental and hypocritical, and, well, because we are. We are hypocritical, and we are judgmental, and we have a disconnect, right? And we always have had a disconnect between what we believe and what we live. For too long, and in too many ways, right, we as Christians use the gospel as a means of salvation, but not as a grounding narrative for our lives. This is what Paul continually is warning the church about and giving instructions to the church. He never gives instruction without grounding it in this narrative. Right? I mean, he, he's given us in these two passages, he gave us no instruction you know, do this, and therefore you should do this. <laughs> he will give instruction later in the books about love and submission and speaking the truth and doing all the working hard and all the, but they have to be grounded in this narrative. Otherwise, we will be hypocrites and liars. We will give the world reason to not believe. Right, like, this is the Timothy and Titus thing. You know, the, the church is supposed to be this buttress, this support, this pillar right? The world should have nothing bad to say about us kind of idea. Our lives will become more and more beautiful and fruitful, more and more in alignment with God's will, the more we enact the story together. The more we are committed to living out the gospel on a daily basis. And you have to do it together. It's a play. It's a drama that we have been given to act out together. And as we act it out, right, and there are people, the heavenly realms are watching us, right, act out the gospel together with one another. It's, it's what we've been called to do. And as you act out a story, it becomes more and more true. Right, we take it on, right? How do we become so ingrained with stories? We hear stories, but we also start to act out stories. There's a reason. So many of us are 
very drama-filled or enjoy dramas and acting, right? There's a reason this is in us. We were all created to act. We were all created to live something out, to act in a certain way, to demonstrate the truth. We need to do this. This is what worship is, an acting out of the gospel narrative. And the good news about it not being our birthday is that we are still invited to the party, no matter how pouty we get, no matter how rebellious we have been, our status at that party is not in jeopardy. God's story is still working and will work no matter what we do with our story. We can't change the story, but we can choose to participate in that story and experience that hope and that life. We can take up our identity and we can live in it together. Because the gospel, when lived out and experienced, gives us power. It gives motivation. Right? Without that narrative as our grounding, we run out of steam very, very quickly. So as a community, as, a, as, as families, as individuals, as a church, right? this is why we gather together. This is why we read the Bible to each other. Because we need these narratives. We need these stories We need that story to be the primary story that we hear and that we live. And for that to be true, we do have to do a little bit of self-reflection about what story am I actually living out on a day-to-day basis? Who do I think controls everything? Who do I think is going to provide me salvation? Am I resting in Christ and his redemptive work, or am I trying to do it myself? And at the heart of the gospel story is this constant place of repentance and worship, which is so great, because we're constantly going to live out those narratives. We're always going to stray from that primary story. So if you're feeling guilty or bad, I mean, right, that's us, right? We're all corrupt. We're all sinful, (laughs) Our salvation isn't dependent on us living out that narrative either, right? That narrative is always going to be there, but our experience of that narrative is dependent on us. That experience of peace and joy and hope and community is dependent on us doing that work, playing our part, right? Paul is going to talk about that a lot with the body, each member playing their part, right? That is on us to do. And it's what we do together and why we gather together as a church is to give us these opportunities to be reminded of that narrative and to live it out together. Well, let me pray. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your love and your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness, your mercy. Lord, and just for your patience with us, that how scripture continually calls us like children and sheep is really appropriate and true. We do look in the mirror and forget what we look like so quickly. We hear who we are in you and we forsake it and try to make names for ourselves. Lord, we hear how we have been saved and purchased by your blood And then we go and we try to earn our own salvation. Lord, thank you that you are so abounding in mercy and love. That you so freely give yourself for us. 
Lord, strengthen us to know how great that love is for us. Lord, strengthen us to take hope and strength and refuge in you and in your work on our behalf. And Lord, help us to put away these false narratives, these false idols, these these counterfeit gods that we serve, these counterfeit stories that we live out. Lord, and help us to put on you and your true story. Lord, strengthen us as a church through your spirit to do this. In your name we pray. Amen.